Before we start to look at God's word this morning, let's just bow, take a moment to bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the freedoms to come and study your word. We ask that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts and of our heads may be acceptable in your sight. These things we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. A quick question to start with this morning. Are we ready? Are we ready? We've read the parable of Jesus is telling about the servants who are waiting on their master's return. And one of the things that we look at within these parables is are the servants ready? When I ask you, are we ready? Some may ask, ready for what? Are we ready to follow Jesus' instructions? Jesus is presently with God and intercedes for us before him. He's with God in the heavens. And this hope we know from the promises of Scripture. And part of that Scripture is the Gospel of Luke that we'll look at this morning. At different times in his ministry, Jesus speaks of the future, preparing the people, and particularly his disciples, for what is to come, for what is to happen, and for them to be ready. He prepares them for his death, and in this passage today, Jesus speaks of his return, and the expectations that that places on his followers. It speaks about <clears throat> what he expects of believers who are waiting for his return. It also warns us of the fate of the non-believer. Jesus uses two parables in this passage we've read this morning. The first parable concentrates on a the servants waiting for their master to return from the wedding feast. So there's a message for all believers and non-believers alike. A reassurance for some, a challenge and a decision to be made for others. The idea of Jesus returning is one that provokes different responses. For some it's a step too far. It's an opportunity to ridicule the believer. You ask us to believe that this guy did miracles. You ask us to believe that this guy rose from the dead. Now you want us to believe that he's going to return? It's a step too far for him. It's an opportunity for ridicule. But we have a hope. A hope that the scriptures make clear to us that Christ will return and he will return in glory. And he will return as a judge. Of believers and non-believers. For those who have accepted him as their saviour. And for those who have rejected him. Others look at the book of Revelations. And start to get involved in all sorts of conjecture. They look at the things that are happening around them. They look at 
parts of Revelations and start trying to predict how these things all fit together and start trying to set dates for Christ's return. They start to be distracted. This morning I would urge that there is a third way and that is to concentrate on what Jesus clearly teaches. To put an end to conjecture and trying to guess what things may mean and prepare for Christ's return. Keep it simple and keep it based on the facts that are in Scripture. The one thing that I'm certain of about Christ's return is that it's something that should fill us with hope. It's something that we should wish to declare to the world. We have an amazing thing to tell people. That we, as as mankind, had forsaken God. We turned our back on God. But God so loved us that he gave us his son. That God so loved us that his son bore our sins on the cross at Calvary. That we were cleansed at that moment by his blood. And not just that he died on the cross, but he rose again. That he rose again to give us a new life. And that is an offer that is open to all mankind. To all mankind if they accept Christ as their saviour. And the story doesn't just end there. The story continues that our Christ, our Saviour, is going to return in glory. And people have a decision to make. Are they ready for his return? Or are they going to turn their back on him again? Jesus starts with a clear exhortation in the passage about to stay dressed for action. In my first initial thought when you see this is to think of the soldier who is always ready when on patrol. That he is focused, he's alert and he's ready. But this reference goes not just to some idea of soldiering. It goes back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11 which reads In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet and your staff in hand and you shall eat it in haste it is the Lord's Passover Jesus is referring back to God's commands about how the first Passover meal was to be eaten the people were to be dressed ready to to leave whenever the Pharaoh gave consent for Moses to lead the people out of Egypt People were to be dressed and ready to go in an instant. Imagine the apparel which folk would be wearing at that time. Imagine their dress, the long flowing robes that would keep them warm at night and cold and cool in the day's heat. So to get ready to move quickly, they would tuck their robes into their belts. They would have their staff in their hands ready to go to stable lies themselves across rough ground. They were to be standing, ready to leave as they ate the meal. Eating in haste, eating quickly, taking in as much as possible and making sure nothing's left. So here in the parable, we are to be ready. 
for the call when Christ returns. There will be no time to make preparations. There will be no time to change our minds and wish we'd done something different. We are to be like the people first eating that meal. We have to be ready to go. But they are to be ready to... So we have the servants awaiting their master's return. They have to be ready for the master to chat the door and for the door to be answered. He doesn't have to want to chat the house door and wake up the full, the full family. He wants to chat the door and the door to be opened promptly. Jesus here in verse 37 returns, turns the tables on the established etiquette. You would expect that the servant would come, take his coat, prepare whatever the master wishes. But we read that for the servants who are ready, the roles will be changed. The servants will be served. The master will come in ready himself and he will serve his servants at the table. And we see this in Jesus' own ministry. As we go further on in the Gospels, as we get to the Last Supper, Jesus becomes a servant. He is the one who washes the feet of his apostles. He is the one who the next day will take our place on the cross. We are the ones who deserve to die for our sins. But Jesus took on that role for us. He took our place. And today he intercedes for us before God. <clears throat> and after the second coming, when Christ returns, he again will intercede for us. He will say to the Father that we are with him, that we belong to him. And to reinforce this whole change, Jesus changes his emphasis from a pleasant situation of being ready, waiting for the, the master's return, to a metaphor of the thief who comes in the night. His example is so clear. Which one of us would not be ready if we knew the time the thief was coming? We wouldn't leave the house empty. We wouldn't be going to bed tightly snuggled up in bed. We'd be sitting by the phone waiting to call the police or waiting to take some form of action. And Christ's return will mirror that, act, that same example. Verse 40 tells us, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus has clearly instructed us to be ready, to remain dressed for action. Instead of trying to work out, work out events that are happening in the news and trying to have some idea of when Christ is going to appear. The idea of a sudden and unexpected return is not some one-off teaching that Luke records here. It's something that is supported throughout the Bible. If we look to Matthew 24... Matthew takes a whole chapter to warn of Christ's return. 
Jesus starts by outlining the destruction that will go before him. Man will rise against man. There will be wars and there will be rumours of wars. There will be natural disasters such as earthquakes and famines. But rather than be ready, people still get distracted. People still decide to plot the course of human events and try and work out when he will return. I remember in my youth, and that wasn't exactly yesterday, but I remember in my youth in the 70s and 80s, the, we used to sing a chorus, and it went, Today or one day more could be your last. And it was a direct reference to Matthew 24. And some people started to read all sorts of things into the chorus. When one of the verses read, The great bear from the Northland has risen from his sleep. And the army ranked in red are near to 100 million deep. If we think of the events from February of this year, with Russia invading Ukraine, and more recently China's threats against Taiwan, you can imagine that there are those who start to go into overdrive, who try to get into the idea of they can predict what God is going to do. These, and these aren't always unknown preachers or some forgotten soothsayer. But why would they do it? But more importantly, why shouldn't they? Because we cannot work out the time of God's planning. We don't know when Christ will return. But God tells us to be ready. Jesus is clear in the latter half of the chapter in verses 36 to 44. Verses 36 to 39 read, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So be the coming of the Son of Man. Also in verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is clear that with us that only God knows the timing of Christ's return. Neither the angels nor the Son of Man know the return date. Only the Father. He likens the days before his return as to the days of Noah. Men and women, boys and girls, will be going about their normal business. They made merry and they cared little of God. Too busy enjoying themselves, enjoying the spoils of life, eating and drinking and getting on with life. Doing business deals, buying and selling, Sending their kids to school. Nothing changed. Until the flood came 
and then it was too late. There was no time to change your life or to change your decisions. Similarly, Jesus makes it relevant to his hearers in saying that two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding the flour, one will be taken and one will be left. Jesus finishes with the, again with the warning of the thief coming at an unexpected hour. Had the owner of the house known, he would have been prepared. He would have still been waiting up. We don't know when Jesus will return, but he will return and we must be ready. Two weak people will be on the bus to Stornoway. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be crossing the Minch in the ferry and one will be taken and one will be left. We are to be ready to be waiting like the Israelites in Egypt. Eating their Passover meal, we have to be ready. We have to stay dressed for action. To unbelievers, you also have the opportunity to be ready. But to be ready, you must change your hearts. Requires that you think no more about you and what you will do. What you want and how you will get it. How you will achieve. It requires acceptance that you cannot achieve readiness by your own efforts. Man has tried through generations to earn his own salvation to no avail. And the non-believer may say, but why? I've done fine up till now. Materially you have, but God's message is clear. We have sinned, we are far from God, and we cannot redeem ourselves. Our redemption only comes through acceptance of Christ as our Saviour. In the second parable, we see Jesus concentrate on not what a man needs to do to be saved, but what a saved man ought to do. So the focus changes a little. If the apparent saved man, however, does not respond, as Jesus outlines, we see the outcome is the same as one who has never claimed faith. It's the same fate as a non-believer. But how can that be? Surely if we have professed faith, that is all that is required. To claim faith is but half the story. Yes, Christ accepts us where we are. If Christ didn't accept us as we are and where we are, no one would come to salvation. Because we cannot change our lives without Christ. No one is perfect. Christ accepts us with all our faults and all our weaknesses. But it is not enough to render a meaningless prayer or a simple quick request. How many folk take an oath in court with little thought of what they say? Or how many people last week at War Memorials sang the National Anthem? Did they really wish the king to rule over them 
And did they even believe in God? Or were they going through simple actions? People make statements with their mouths that are far from the feelings of their hearts. That is why before I start a sermon, I have a simple prayer that requests that the words of my mouth may match the meditations of all our hearts. Our words and our actions and our hearts need to marry. You may be able to hide the feelings of your heart from some folk. You may even be able to say one thing to your loved ones while thinking something else. But not so with God. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can say one thing while feeling and thinking something else. In Luke 16, Jesus says to the Pharisees, God knows your hearts. He was speaking to a group of men who lived a life of double standards. A group of men who said long prayers, who were pious in their living, but whose hearts were far from God. Whose hearts were about their own obsessions about their own place in society. It was their wants, their desires and their views of God which were important. Not the commands of God nor the direction that he wished them to go. Man seen only their long prayers in their pious life but God knew their hearts and their true motives. And just as he knew the Pharisees' true motives, so he knows us. He knows our words and he knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts and not just our false utterings. Jesus is clear in his teachings that we require to repent of our old lives if we are repenting of our sins and self-desires. We need to accept Christ as our saviour, to have faith in him alone as the root of salvation and we need to change our actions. We must change our hearts and our lives. Jesus paints a picture once more of the master leaving his servant. In the second parable we see first the occasion where the master returns and the servant and manager in charge has done all that has been asked of him. He has fulfilled his duties, he has cared for his fellow servants. And his reward will be great. The second part tells of a servant who decides, my master's delayed. There's no rush in doing these tasks. I can busy myself with my own desires. He can look after the things that he sees important and put his master's work aside. Until the master returns at an unexpected hour. And the master is obviously none too happy. And the outcome for the unfaithful servant is not good news. The servant has mistreated his fellow servants, put aside his master's work. 
The master returns and his punishment will be great. James in his letter reminds us that our work reflects our faith. So if we, like the Pharisees, do one thing in our actions, or rather if we do one thing through our actions and our words say something else, God knows. It's not a secret. It's not hidden. It's seen. And often as Reformed Christians, we are wary about talking about works. We're wary that people might get the wrong idea. Well, we need to be clear that works don't lead to our salvation. But works are a reflection of our faith. So if we have no works, can we truly have faith? If our lives are far from what Scripture demands of us, have we really made a decision for Christ? Or did we just say something to get somebody else off our backs and to ease our conscience? James, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 of his letter, says no. The two need to be linked. We cannot preach a gospel and then not have a life reflecting that gospel. Our lifestyles must reflect our beliefs. We're called to have a living faith, a faith that mirrors our faith in Christ. We are called to be in the world, but to be apart apart from the world. We're to live in this world, come alongside people in this world, care for this world, but we're to make sure that we are not led into temptations of this world, that we keep ourselves apart. As we live in Christ, so we give witness to the world about him. Not just by our words, but about how we live. The example we set. What are you doing with your knowledge of God and Jesus' offer of salvation? Are you using it wisely? Have you made a decision to accept Christ as your saviour? Or are you continuing in blindness down the road of self-reliance and ultimately self-destruction. The final part is to look at the fate of believers and non-believers in his return. We know what happens to the servant, the unfaithful servant when his master returns. What happens to the non-believer or to the unfaithful servant of Christ when he returns? Jesus' first coming as a man was to proclaim the good news of God's salvation for man. We think of John 3. Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn it. He came to tell the good news of salvation. But when he returns, he returns as a judge. A judge of you and I. A judge whether you're a believer or a non-believer. Bible is clear, man deserves judgment and condemnation for his sin. We have all sinned, we have all went from God, we have all forsaken his ways. But many of us have been blessed and accepted Christ as our saviour. 
In Matthew 25, we hear about Christ's return and how he will judge the world. The world will be separated, basically, into two. Like a farmer separating his goats from his sheep. The goats will go to the left and the sheep to the right. So Christ will separate believers and those who know him as a saviour to the right. And those who have rejected him, he will separate to the left. Those in his right will come into his presence and have all eternity with God, praising him and giving glory to him. Those on the left will be cast out to death and separation from God. You will be judged on your decisions. What decisions have you made in your life? Have you accepted Christ? Or have you rejected him? Are you a faithful follower? Or is it just a belief in your head? Because the rest doesn't really matter. There's a choice to be made. Where will your choice lie? God's word is clear. God created man in communion with him. If you've made decision for Christ, then is it a reality in your life? If it's a reality in your life, then you will have communion with him today, tomorrow, and for eternity. If we have made a decision for Christ, then let us watch our heart that they are in constant service to him. So we are ready as we await Christ's return. Let us be fruitful for the Lord. Let us spread his good news that as many as possible may know the glory that's to be had, salvation that's to be had through faith in Christ alone. As the Israelites were ready, as they ate that first Passover meal, let us be ready. Let us be ready for, man's re- for Christ's return that we are not the man or woman who's left behind. Christ is returning. He will return in glory. And that's something that all as Christians we should rejoice in. It's a hope for today which will affect all our tomorrows. It's a hope for today that will affect our eternity. Let us pray. Father, as we have said already this morning, we give you thanks that you are a God who keeps your promises. You are a God who wishes once more to have a proper relationship with your creation. And we give you thanks for the gift of your Son, your son who died for us that our sins could be forgiven your son who shed his blood that we could be cleansed Father we ask that by your Holy Spirit our lives may be driven forward in the service of you at all times 
for those who have yet to come before you and declare your Son as their Saviour and you as their God and Creator. We pray, Lord, that you pour out your grace upon them, that they come to have their hearts moved by your Holy Spirit, that the Spirit will soften their hearts and they will accept your Son as their Saviour. These things we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.